Good morning, everyone. We are continuing our journey through Advent together. And I'm one of those annoying people, or awesome people, depending on your perspective. I love Christmas. I love the build-up. I love the songs. I love my Christmas playlist, which begins at, at the start of December. Maybe a sneaky few days before in November, if we're really feeling like it needs to be done. And one of the things I never tire of, which is kind of handy in this profession, is unpacking the nativity story and the Christmas story afresh. Because I find every year there's something new to see. In fact, it blows my mind. We were at choir rehearsal for um, our Christmas celebrations a couple of weeks ago. And I just said to Pete afterwards, it blows my mind that there are so many songs that have been written about Christmas over the years. And each one unlocks a different facet of God's character or the hope that there is or the truth that there is contained in the Christmas story. The danger is, though, that because it comes every year and it kind of comes a bit like a freight train, whether you want it to come towards you or not, Christmas is on its way, right? That we can become really familiar with it. So I want you to kind of just shake off the familiarity today. You can actually do it. Go on. Come on. Let's shake it off um, in the words of Taylor Swift. And let's delve in afresh this morning. I just want you to catch something fresh of God's heart this Christmas time. Are you with me? So if you were Father, Son and Holy Spirit, I know it's hard to imagine those lofty heights of perfection, but just allow yourself to go there with me for a moment. And you know that humanity have blown it. Your heart is that you want to walk with the human beings that you have lovingly created in your own image. But they just keep turning their back. They keep walking away. They keep doing their own thing. They keep worshipping other gods. And you need to come up with a plan. So you come up with this absolutely incredible rescue plan. And that is that one of you is going to come to earth in human form. You're going to basically get the job done yourself because it hasn't really worked with the prophets. It hasn't really worked with raising up kings because they're just human and it all tends to go pear-shaped in the end. So you are going to lay aside the majesty and the splendor and the beauty of heaven and come to earth as a tiny baby, right? Genius plan. Who are you going to involve in this plan? Who are going to be the first people that you tell? How are you going to do it? And this morning I want to look at the unlikely heroes of the nativity story. Because this has blown my mind. Who God chose to let in on the greatest story ever told. The unlikely heroes. And we're going to look at how unlikely these people actually were and are. And the more we do, the more we're going to see hope for you and me. Because although we are human and we do blow it, the Christmas story, if it tells us nothing else, is that God's heart beats for you and for me. He is passionate about relationship with us. So I'm going to be delving into a lot of different elements of the Christmas story, some of which are found in Luke 1 and 2. And some of which are found in Matthew 1 and 2. And I'm going to pick out occasional verses, but mostly I'll be paraphrasing bits of the story because we don't have time to unpack all of that today. And I'm going to look at four different heroes or clusters of heroes in some cases because it's not always individuals. 
And we're going to start with the teenage girl. It's Mary. I've made a little top trump card of unlikeliness levels, okay? So just join with me. Please understand that in my ratings, the numbers are relatively arbitrary. They're just to give you an idea. So don't get upset if somebody wins this competition that you weren't expecting, okay? It's just there for visual impact. And thanks to the lovely Amy for helping bring my vision to life. Uh, so here we have Mary. Now listen, why is Mary an unlikely hero? Why is she the mo one of the most unlikely people that God would draw into this incredible plan? Jewish women in first century Palestine had very limited legal and economic rights. In fact, when a girl was in the household of her father, any work she did, any wages that she earned would belong to her father. That is how little her rights would have been. And once she married, the wages or produce that she made would belong to her husband. There were very few times in life where a Jewish woman would have any sense of autonomy back then. And she had little to no authority. Women were limited to the home and they were on a par in social standing with slaves. And they were considered completely inferior to men. In fact, from the second temple period, women were not allowed to testify in court trials. That is how little their voice mattered at this time. They couldn't go out in public. They couldn't talk to strangers. When outside their homes, they were to be doubly veiled. And one commentary writes that women had become second-class Jews. They were excluded from the worship and teaching of God, with status scarcely above that of slaves. A woman's ineligibility to perform in public religious life is reflected in an old synagogue prayer. And I've brought this before. It's shocking, but I want to bring it again. Listen to this. This is what the guys would pray. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Okay, I know, that is gasp-worthy, isn't it? So Mary's a pretty unlikely hero. Because as far as the rest of her culture were concerned, as far as the rest of the Jewish community back in biblical times were concerned, her voice didn't matter. Her opinion or testimony in court didn't matter. She had no wealth or assets that belonged to her. There was nothing to commend her. In fact, most people would be glad that they weren't born a woman. And if we understand that, it begins to blow our mind that God shows up and speaks to a teenage girl and lets her into the greatest plan, secret mission ever conceived in all of time. So how does God speak? Well, he speaks through an angel. And I want to stop there for a moment and say this. What would you do if God spoke to you through an angel? What would you do? Would you think you're out of your mind? Would you think you're having a funny five minutes? Have we stopped expecting God to speak in crazy ways? I sometimes wonder if my Christian journey has just become a little bit sanitized and tame because I don't even expect God to speak to me through an angel, if I'm really honest. I kind of expect him to speak to me in ways that are much more comfortable and palatable and in line with my own common sense. 
But for a teenage girl who was excluded from religious life, who was not considered worthy to be part of the worshipping community, to be visited not just by any old angel, but the head of the angels, Gabriel, this is mind-blowing. It's radical. It's out there. It's breaking taboos. It's breaking the, the dividing lines that society had created. And the chief messenger of God turns up. I love it. You can imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planning this with glee. They're like, you know what? We're just going to break and wreck their religious traditions in one moment by sending this angel to a teenage girl. She's insignificant. Or seemingly so. But God sees something in Mary that is worth pursuing. And get this. Verse 28 of um, Luke 1. The angel says this. Greetings, favoured one. The Lord is with you. Now, this kind of greeting was a greeting that they would have been familiar with in those days. And it was generally a greeting that was reserved for people of nobility or kingship, people of exemplary holiness, not teenage girls. Wow, I love that. It blows my mind because here's a girl that everyone else is saying is pretty much off limits. She's got nothing to offer the worshipping community and yet God saw her and he blessed her with this greeting that was reserved for really, really VIP people. That's how much he valued her. That's how much he saw in her. And we can take comfort from that because no matter how far away we might feel, no matter how other people might make us feel about our walk with Jesus, he sees something in us that others may never, never notice. It is radical. And this exchange happens between Mary and the angel and the angel basically lets her know that there's this amazing plan and she's going to be a very, very significant part of it and that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her and that she is going to give birth to the Son of God. I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying as a teenage girl um, and it's terrifying for all sorts of reasons. And yet... The thing that's so incredible about Mary and the reason why I'm sure that she was chosen for this assignment is that she's clearly terrified, but she's all in for God's plan. She's all in for God's plan. And there's this moment of incredible obedience where she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Just wow. There's a massive cost attached to this. She was going to risk her engagement to a great guy and he represents her security because remember, she's reliant on her husband for income and, and any kind of financial security. So it's going to risk that. It risks her planned future that's mapped out for her. It risks her and her family's reputation in the eyes of the community. She is going to be disgraced in a hugely visible, visible way by saying yes to this assignment. But to Mary, the blessing and favor of God is more important to her than the blessing of her family and her community. And so she says yes to God and she's willing to serve him in this way. And there's this beautiful moment 
where Mary begins to worship. You know the moment where she goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, and the baby in Elizabeth's tummy leaps in her womb when Mary arrives. And Elizabeth, she knows what's going on. It's like she gets this prophetic insight and she starts prophesying. And Mary's response is to sing this famous song called, it's called the Magnificat. And it's beautiful. And it's actually a really subversive song because it's talking about how God topples over human power structures and he lifts up the lowly and he has his eyes on the poor and the meek and the ones that everybody else overlooks. And she sings this song of worship. Her response to an angel who is going to disrupt her life is to sing this song of joy that even though she is insignificant in her culture, even though she has been overlooked, God has seen her. And more than that, the angel has said, God is with you. God is with you, Mary, so much with you that he wants to grow inside of you. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Worship is intrinsic to the Christmas narrative, and we're going to see this in all our unlikely heroes. And I want to encourage us, actually, because there's a reason that we sing songs at Christmas. We sing songs at Christmas not just out of tradition, but actually to remind ourselves that worship was the response of every single one of those people. And we're going to look at that in a little more detail later. It's good to worship. So what can we learn from this first unlikely hero? Well, I think if we want to learn anything from Mary's story and take encouragement, it's that God sees and blesses those who others overlook. And that's a reason to be glad this Christmas time. Let's move on to the good guy. We have Joseph. Can we give a little whoop for Joseph? Yes. Absolute legendary guy. I mean, not legendary. I believe that he did really exist. But, you know, his legendary status lives on with me. Now, Joseph, why is he unlikely? Technically, he's not, which is why I've given him 50. He's unlikely in some senses, but he's not as unlikely as Mary or some of the others we're going to look at this morning because he's from the line of David. And that's a really, really important thing in Jewish culture. David was considered to be the greatest king um, that, that they had, the Jews. And so being in the line, the lineage of David was very, very important. And it's also important in fulfilling God's promises and prophecies um, that led up to this moment. But what about Joseph? I always think of him as he's, he was a righteous man. He was a good man. And I think that that's kind of radical because often when we're telling a story or we're watching a movie, the good guys don't always seem to be you know, in the spotlight, do they? We tend to focus more on the kind of bad guys turn good or we, we like those kind of stories. But actually, I think this is really important to bring forward today because I'm going to look at lots who are on the margins. But God actually just loves a good, faithful, consistent person. And if that's your story today and you don't have a radical, you know what, I was a million miles from God doing X, Y, and Z, and then I found him and ta-da, my life turned around. That's okay. It's all right to be the ordinary person who is doing the right thing, who's trying to live life for an audience of one. And that's pretty much Joseph, actually. He wasn't wealthy. He was a carpenter, so he had a good trade. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't wealthy. Um, but he shines in the Christmas story. 
And he was written in for, for such an important reason, I think. God doesn't just want to pull the dark horses into his kingdom plan. He also wants to acknowledge the ordinary, faith-filled and faithful people. And the thing that sets Joseph apart is his heart. This man reflects the love and kindness of God so beautifully. He is selfless. So when he finds out about Mary... According to Jewish culture at the time, the betrothal, the engagement would take place, but then there would be a year's wait. And the year's wait was basically to establish whether the, whether the, the woman um, would, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this, um, whether the woman would have slept with anybody previously and during that year it would become obvious if she had or she hadn't, right? And mostly that wouldn't be the case. But here's Joseph. And he's however many months in, and Mary's telling him that she's going to have a baby, but the baby's the son of God, and it doesn't sound very believable because it wouldn't to anybody normal. So this guy, if you want to know a measure of his kindness, he's been betrayed. His reputation is about to be in tatters, and he is a good man. And he's asking himself some tough questions. But listen to this. And Joseph, her promised husband, being a just and righteous man and not wanting to expose her publicly to shame, planned to send her away and divorce her quietly. I mean, in that moment, you'd think he'd kind of have a right for all hell to break loose a bit. He'd kind of have a right to want to publicly shame her and to make sure that everybody knew that it wasn't, it wasn't down to him, that this, you know, she was on her own. But he's a good man and he doesn't want to disgrace her. And even in that moment of intense sorrow and betrayal, he's putting her needs first. He's thinking about ways to protect her from disgrace to ensure that she's okay. Why? Because he loves God and he loves her. And you can really feel that in this story. Joseph is a good man. How does God speak to him then? Because there's this turnaround moment. And I love this. It says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying. So now we've got an angel and we've got a dream. Let's talk about that. All right, we've already said, well, I've admitted and most of you have nodded, so I'm assuming you're with me. We don't generally expect God to send angels to speak to us. How much attention do we pay to our dreams then, church? Come on, let's talk about it. I'm going to tell you a story, right? Years ago, Pete and I were living by faith for our finances. We left our secure jobs as teachers and we set up a school's work ministry. And some wonderful people in the church supported us back then so that we weren't completely destitute. And the rest of it, we just had to trust God to make up. Okay, so it was a pretty stressful time on the financial front. In fact, on lots of fronts, to be honest. But anyway, that's another story for another day. And one day... I had stopped, by the way, incidentally, looking at our bank account at this point because it was really unhelpful. It never added up. And so the more I looked at the bank account, the more terrified I became about the decision that we'd made because there were times in the month where it was just impossible. It, it was totally impossible. So I decided that ignorance was bliss and the way that I was going to keep trusting the Lord is not to look but to pray. So that was my thing. So get this right. One night I have a dream. And in the dream... 
we were being defrauded. Our, our bank account was being defrauded, and it was such a vivid dream. So the next morning, I wake up, and I'm like, oh, it's just a dream. Oh, wow. And I go through my day. But this dream won't leave me. And I keep remembering it, and I keep thinking about it, and I think, oh, I wonder if God's trying to get my attention. So I go on to the online banking, try and remember the password, um, and take a look. And sure enough, right, no word of a lie, going back three months, we had been defrauded. And it was quite a while ago now, but at the time there was this thing, I don't know if any of you remember this, where you might go to a petrol station or somewhere and your card would get cloned. So someone had cloned our card and it wasn't big amounts. So I wouldn't have noticed even if I had been particularly been checking unless I was really looking for it. But it was £100 here and a petrol fill up there and a grocery shop there, but all in locations that we hadn't been to. So amazingly, we fill out the, the form and we managed to reclaim all the stuff, but I would never have known if it hadn't been for that dream. And that was the moment that I decided in my heart, God can speak through dreams. And since then, he has spoken to me many times in dreams. Sometimes it's been too much cheese before bed, but other times it's been a God dream. Let's not put God's capacity to speak to us off limits. I just want to say, come on, church. If we believe that God can speak to us using all sorts of different things, why couldn't he talk to you or me in a dream today? He could. He could. we just got to be open to it. So here's Joseph, and we can see from this verse, he's a considered man. That means he doesn't take decisions lightly. He's thinking this all through. He's measured. There's something about him that isn't rash. He doesn't knee-jerk. He doesn't make a decision quickly. He's considering it. He's taking his time to work out the best way to proceed. And God speaks through this dream. And what amazes me is that this measured, rational, thought-through guy responds to the dream by doing exactly what he's asked to do which is to marry her anyway. And God says, basically, no, it's all right. It, this is the son of God, Joseph. It's going to be okay. You need to take Mary as your wife. Who changes the whole course of their future based on a dream? Who does that? It's one thing for me to check through my bank accounts, but to actually decide to marry someone that you think might have wronged you because God told you in a dream, that's radical faith. It's radical obedience. I just love it. This measured man, he knows it's God. He just must have known something inside him grabbed a hold of the word of God and he wouldn't let it go. And his response is to worship, but he worships in a different way. His is not a song. And those of us who aren't musically minded, you can be encouraged by this because there are so many ways to worship. Joseph's worship is sacrifice. He sacrifices his reputation. He gives up his immediate gratification. He has to now wait or he decides to wait until Mary's had the baby before consummating their marriage. That's a massive act of self-control and sacrifice. And honestly, in our culture, in our day and age, we don't like thinking about that kind of sacrifice. But sometimes God asks us to give things up in order to honor him first. And maybe that's a word for someone here today. His worship looked like self-denial, not doing what he wanted to do in order to be obedient to God. 
But there's something about being selfless that God loves. And I think that's why God writes Joseph in. This beautiful sacrifice of praise that puts God before his own needs, his own desires and his own standing in the eyes of his community. So costly, but so precious. So what can we learn from Joseph's story? That God sees the regular good guys and girls too. Isn't that awesome? Let's move on. We've got the outcasts, the shepherds, these guys. I mean, their unlikeliness factor for being written into the greatest story ever told is off the charts. To be honest, it's probably maxed out at 100. Um, Shepherds used to be held in high esteem, but by this time they held a low social standing. And they were seen as having pretty much no value by the rest of society. They'd become unwanted and they were pushed to the margins. They definitely weren't used to receiving good news. That was not their thing. They were like blue-collar workers and they had it hard. They had the same unenviable status as tax collectors and they had no voice into their community. They were deprived of all civil rights. They couldn't fulfill judicial offices or, like women, be admitted in court as witnesses. And the smug religious leaders of the day had a strict caste system at the expense of shepherds and other common folk. Shepherds were officially labelled, get this, sinners. A technical term for a class of despised people. What? Okay, so when we think about them tending their flocks, we've got this nice, like, snuggly image. But these guys, they have got a tough life. They've got a tough life. If you were about to announce the good news of the birth of Messiah and you wanted it to spread to the rest of the world, would you choose the shepherds? No, you wouldn't choose. You'd you'd most likely choose the biggest influencers, the movers and shakers. And this is the amazing thing about these guys and why they're unlikely heroes. It tells us something of God's heart. That instead of going for the most important, instead of going for the religious leaders of the day, or maybe even one of the Roman leaders, you know, someone who's really influential and can take it all the way across the world. No, God chooses the least of the least. The outcasts who weren't even, as we heard from Jennifer last week, weren't even going to sort to to the census. They're stuck there. they're, They're not going anywhere and doing what the rest of society are doing. So when the religious elite were left off the mailing list, we understand that Jesus came to save sinners and not the smug. And that's good news for you and for me, right? Because we stuff up all the time and we realize that we're not important. We realize that we're pretty insignificant in the scheme of things. And yet God knows our name, friends. So how did he speak? Well, these guys get a group of angels, and that's radical. It's not just one. They get a whole host of angels, and they get serenaded with this incredible song of praise. And that's how much God wants to show off and say, hey, you guys, you know how everyone else has written you off. You know how you're so unimportant. You know how you have nothing. Well, today I'm going to give you the best news that humanity could ever receive. And it doesn't look like wealth, but it looks like a richness inside of you, because once you know the Son of God, your life will never be the same wow it blows my mind you guys come on the shepherds chosen to receive good news and the angel says the main one don't be afraid I bring you good news of great joy and it's for everyone these guys 
that no one else wants to associate with. They have a tailor-made invitation. It is for you, this good news. And you are going to spread it to everyone. And that's exactly what they do. Because their response to this incredible, subversive moment where conventional wisdom and strength are not sought out, where God makes himself known to the most weak, the most marginalized, the most silenced, the most oppressed, and blesses them, in that moment... They respond by getting up and going. And for some of us, we're more activists in the way that we worship. We might not be able to find a song and we, maybe we're not so into the self-sacrifice, but we, we want to get up and go when God says something to us. And these guys, they just get up, they hear it, they leave their sheep behind and they run. They can't wait to see if it's true. And when they have met that baby... They have this contagious joy and they just go around telling everybody this good news. And I don't know how pe if people listen to them. I don't know whether their joy impacted everybody else. But they couldn't help themselves but go on to be bearers of the good news. And that challenges me because I am in danger sometimes of keeping that good news to myself. Because I don't want to impose on anybody and I understand that. It's important that we don't bash people over the head with the Bible. We're not into that as a church. But sometimes we can go so far in the other direction, we fail to grasp how good that news really is for us because in our comfort and in our wealth, we lose sight of the fact that this is transformational and it's hope for everyone. So what can we learn from our shepherds, the outcasts, that God specifically seeks out the lost and the least. That's our God. How awesome. Coming up last. You're still with me. We got the outsiders. Ooh. The Magi or the wise men. These guys, why were they unlikely? Well, interestingly, they were highly influential and wealthy men. They were part of a, the they were part of the royal circle. We don't know if they were actually kings. Some commentators think they were, others think they weren't. Um, but they were definitely important, and we can tell this because they were granted an audience with King Herod on their way through. And so that tells you that wouldn't have been the case for many people. Um, they are influential, and it isn't actually clear from Scripture how many of them there were. Some commentators think the real number is likely to have been closer to 12, a whole company of magi, but we don't know. So that's important because we always put it down to three, but that's not actually accurate. Um, and there were men who were fascinated with the sky. They were astronomers and they used the constellation and the science of the universe to discern the times and seasons they were living in. And they would have been called on by royalty as advisors or consultants based on all this knowledge and scientific insight that they had. So why are they unlikely? Well, they're unlikely because they were Gentiles. That basically means they weren't Jewish. And that made them certainly to a, a Jewish mindset in the day completely and utterly off limits. Completely and utterly off limits. They, they definitely out of everybody that I've mentioned, they're not getting a seat at the table because they are not Jewish. Our God is so radical. I love it. They're beyond the borders of the special covenant that God had made with the Jewish people. They are outsiders, foreigners, living in a distant land. They were off the radar, both geographically and spiritually. And therein lies the sheer genius of God. 
Every time we place people in a box, in a category, he comes along and he smashes the box. And no one is too distant. No one is too far outside. There are no borders, no barriers in God's eyes when it comes to sharing his kingdom with humankind. He doesn't just come for the good guys. He comes for everybody. And he wanted to make that crystal clear from the very beginning that this good news, the incredible unconditional love in the form of a tiny baby, was not just for God-fearing Jews. It was for anybody who had a heart to seek him out. The distant, the disqualified, the outsiders, the outcasts. So how did God speak? Well, this time, he speaks through the sky. He's talking their language. And I love that because he obviously wants to get their attention. And it's interesting to me that everybody would have had the capacity to see that star. But not everyone was looking for it. Not everyone had the courage to interpret what it meant. And not everybody was willing to uproot themselves 800 to 900 miles on a long journey, wondering where on earth it was going to lead. That's radical faith, isn't it? I mean, these guys were committed to the cause. They saw that star. They understood that it represented a new king for the Jews. They had enough insight to, to know and discern that, which is amazing. But then they leave behind the comfort of this royal influential position that they're in. And they journey all this way. And it can't have been as obvious as the Christmas cards make it look, right? In the Christmas cards, the star is enormous, isn't it? And it's just resting over the stable. So it's clearly obvious. But had that been the case, Herod would have found Jesus, okay? So it can't have been that. I feel like it was more this blink and you might miss it kind of star. They see its prominence. They understand it's slightly brighter. But it's not as obvious as this kind of, you know, ta-da, we're following the star. Um, I think they are, they're trekking and they don't know where they're going to end up. And it's not that easy. And in fact, you know, they don't arrive at the actual birth moment. Again, the Christmas cards are erroneous. They don't turn up then. They, they come later. And the reason we know that is because Herod, when he finally realizes that they've duped him, um, he puts out an edict for all of the, the younger. I think it's two and under, is it? Yeah, two and under. So Jesus is probably coming up for two at that point. They arrive later in the, in the piece because their journey has been a long one. So these guys, they've got discernment. They're traveling. They go the extra mile, quite literally, and um, they follow where the star leads. But they also, they also had great discernment because when they, when they meet with Herod and they, they expect Herod to be excited about this news and Herod is threatened and he wants to kill this baby, He's, it's not good news for him, um, they have a dream not to return the way they've come and not to let Herod know. So they are listening to their discernment. And I want to put it to us. How often do we listen to our discernment? You ever have that nagging feeling where you're like, oh, no, I just don't think I should drive that route today. Or, oh, I'm not, I just, just really feel like I need to reach out to this person. And we just push it away as, oh, no, you're probably just being silly. But God gives some of us, in fact, all of us, a capacity to discern his voice. And these guys, they acted on that. And because of that, Jesus remained safe and they remained safe, which is incredible. And they worshipped. And you know what? Their act of worship blows me away, maybe more than all the others, because these are influential people. 
They are important. They are surrounded by royalty all the time. And they pitch up and they see a toddler in nappies running about, probably, realistically speaking. But when they see him, they absolutely know that this is a king. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And in the falling down, that act of being um, prostrate before Jesus, they are basically saying, we acknowledge that you're greater than us. We acknowledge your kingship. This is worship befitting of the king of kings. And then they worship with actual gifts. They give of their wealth. And I love this too. Because sometimes we like the idea of worshipping with a song. Let's be real. We like the idea of getting up and go and do all the stuff for God. But how do we feel when he says, but hang on a minute. You've been entrusted with a lot. And they just put that gold, frankincense and myrrh at Jesus' feet. And they give of their wealth. And that's a challenge to us this Christmas time as so many suffer with cost of living, as so many across our world still are feeling the effects and the aftermath of the pandemic, as children starve on the other side of the world, do we, what are we going to give from our wealth this Christmas? What am I going to give? So what can we learn from those guys? Well, unfortunately, my last slide isn't there, but I can tell you because it's in my notes. There are no outsiders in the kingdom. Jesus is for everyone and for anyone. But there's one caveat to that. He's looking for something. And it's the thing that joins all our unlikely heroes today. And that is a heart that will believe in him. The only thing that can keep us away is choosing not to believe in him. But for all those hearts that will receive him as king of kings, he will come and make his home with us. Let's stand.